Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Layton Broadcasting, the Ask Noah Show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this evening. Joining me is my co-host, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. Good evening from an unusually warm South Dakota tonight. So we have to apologize to people for last week. So what happened was there was an electrical storm of sorts. And it ended up taking out our main broadcast council. Now, the good news or the silver lining is broadcast council is made by a company called Telos, and um, it's the Axia. And the nice thing about Telos is they understand broadcast. They understand mission critical. And so when I called them on Tuesday and said, hey, this is the issue that we're having, they were very quick to work with our I, I was actually a Red Hat Summit, so I was in fast in Massachusetts, uh, interviewing Steve Boss, of all things. And my team at Speed Technologies is frantically working inside the studio, trying to get this thing squared away. And as part of doing that, they're working with Telos. And eventually, long story short, we got our board sent off. They offered us a loaner, so we're back on the air. Everything is, is good for the time being. Hopefully, they'll get our board fixed and back to us before Southeast Linux Fest. But we just weren't able to do it last week. And thus, we had to take a night off. So, uh, Steve, are you wanting to, ready to get into some feedback? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Our first email comes in tonight. Email comes in from Rick. Rick writes, or no, not Rick. I'm sorry. Larry. Larry writes in and says, hi, guys. I absolutely love the show. I'd like your take on Unplugged. It's a phone service. And if I'm correct, they offer a phone as well as a suite of apps that are not mining your data. I trust you and Steve's opinion on the subject. Thank you for the show and everything you do, Larry. And so he links, well, he doesn't actually link, he, he sent in just the name, but Steve and I were able to uncover unplug.com slash the up phone. And we'll have a link for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. So I, I'll start with the positives. Positives are website, very well done, looks very professional. They say all of the right things, privacy, security, integrity. They're dealing with, you know, unfettered, untracked communication, all the rest of it. Again, on paper, if you're looking for a Libra phone, this seems like a great choice. Um, but they don't really get into the how. They stick, they, everything seems to be, how do I say this? Very high level, very marketing, and doesn't really get into the underpinnings. So for example, they explain what end-to-end -end encryption is, but if I ask the question, so how are you achieving end-to-end -end encryption? How does that work? They don't have like a link to the GitHub page or GitLab page. They don't have access to the source code. They don't talk about the software that it's based underneath. And then I guess the biggest thing is I'm in a lot of privacy-centric circles. And this is the first time I've come across this device. Steve, what are your thoughts? I wasn't convinced that this is actually any kind of Libra system at all, to be honest with you. Okay. It was really hard to say. So they call it Liebert OS, but then when you read through, um, you know, there are some lines on the page that says things like download unplugs proprietary and third-party apps and things of that nature. And that makes me go, okay, I don't really understand what's going on here. Is this an open phone or is it not an open phone? And at one point they talk about mm. the um, 
the fact that they have proprietary apps and and it's not so they they have good marketing in terms of hey if you're paying for something you're you know you're less likely to be the product if you're getting something for free you're the product and so then they they kind of go into a little bit about how they have some proprietary software and you can essentially you can trust them because you're paying for you're paying for the phone and they they offer services and that's how they have a business model kind of stacked up and and there is some validity in that kind of approach right hey we we have services behind this we're charging you for the phone we're not charging you for the data that we swear um you know there's there's no way for us to verify based on just the marketing uh that that's part of the problem like you said is there's a lot of marketing speak and it's kind of thin on actual details on the website itself like i didn't start going trolling for um any kind of forms or outside comment i just went to their website and started kind of poking through and it's really hard to get a, a feel on what this phone actually is other than it's a phone and it doesn't use android or maybe it does like we don't i couldn't tell you mm -hmm. right i it just gives you the name of the os but that doesn't mean that they just didn't spin android in a different direction and they talk about their their up messenger like they put it front and center on the website and that's it like no understanding i have no understanding of what kind of applications it runs is it android compatible or is it not android like there's just no not enough information like every time that i clicked a button that said get informed or learn more or something like that it pops up and asks you to put in your name and your email address so that they can add you to their uh, mailing list and I wasn't about to do that um, because I get the, the marketing heebie-jeebies on this one. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, they get all the points for marketing and all the points for great website design and all the rest of it. But as far as, uh, you know, should you trust them, would you go with it? I might hold off on a little bit. I, I downloaded what they're calling their security report, which I expected to be some sort of a, you know, third party. We went through and reviewed all of their systems and found this, that, or the other. Um, and essentially, it's like a one-page PDF that says PwC was asked to perform a security review. They chose this particular kind of testing method. The testing method was based off of these vulnerabilities and based on the assessment X. It was evident the attacks, you know, this is a minimum attack service, all the rest of it. So um, that's a long story longer. Might be the best phone on the face of the planet. Might be a total scam. Uh, we just don't have enough information to know. Uh, if I were looking for a privacy-centric phone, I would probably start with something like the Graffini OSs of the world or even the Lineage OSs of the world. And I'd kind of work my way from there. If for no other reason, they're more well-known, they're more available or wider community support for them. And if unplugged.com, the upphone, if they're doing great work and you've heard of them, I invite you to write in live at asknoahshow.com. We'd love to hear from you. What's been your experience? Do you like it? Has it worked well? Why did you go with it? And what do you know about the underpinnings? Essentially, why do you trust it? Our second email comes in this evening from Rick. Rick writes in and says, hey, Noah and Steve, I have listened to every episode of the Ask Noah show, and I know how you like to recommend Caden Live. I've been using it for several years as well, but I had a bad experience, and I'm hoping it can save your listeners some time and trouble. My wife works for a nonprofit and has been organizing and running a camp every summer for adults with disabilities. 
She's been doing this for almost 25 years. All videos and photos are rounded up and given to me to create a DVD for campers for the memory of their time there. I always use Caden Live to make these videos. It's very easy to use. It's very great effects. However, this year, I had the worst experience with it. Before I started working on the project, I updated my box to Ubuntu 2204.2, the LTS. And I made sure that Caden Live was the latest version. However, every time I started working with the video, the app crashed. After the 10th crash, I ran all the updates again to see if I'd missed anything. I'm not always working with the most powerful desktop, but should have plenty of resources for Caden Live. It's an AMD Ryzen 5, 3600, 3.6 GHz to CPU, and 16 gigabytes of RAM. The OS is on an SSD hard drive with 2 terabytes of free disk space. It's not an SSD. I continued troubleshooting by running the command which Caden Live and found that my package was a snap package. I installed it years ago, and I didn't even recall how it was installed, and I wasn't thinking about it because last year it didn't give me any issues at all. I then ran the snap command to update the version. It didn't help. It was on the most current version already. So I ran the snap command to uninstall the app, and I found that the Caden Live was available from my current app repository, so I just installed it with app. After the app installation, I didn't have any additional issues. Caden Live didn't crash once. The snap version is unstable in my opinion. My takeaway from this experience, watch out for snap packages. Now that I've been bitten by them, I'll be wary of snaps. If your audience is having app issues, specifically with Caden Live, I'd suggest they check out how it was installed. I hope this saves someone in your audience from a lot of trouble. Best regards, Rick. So, Steve, have you ever experienced, I'm just going to say, inconsistencies with universal packaging? Yeah, I've experienced similar things uh, as Rick has here. Not necessarily with KDN Live, but I definitely have had it where I flop back and forth between the app or the dev package, I should say, and and a snap. And I've I've found the same thing. On uh, for me, I want to say that it was Ardour or something like that. And I wondered whether or not it has something to do with the drivers. So my first inclination is because remember, like. Um, well, I know for sure Flatpak does. I don't know if Snap does. I assume it does. But the Flatpak, for example, pulls down if you're running the, an NVIDIA card, it pulls down NVIDIA drivers into its little sandbox. And, you know, some people get really irritated because it eats up all that extra space. It's an extra 500 megs or whatever. I assume that Snap is doing something similar in order to keep the, the sandboxing, right? Because part of the part of mm -hmm. the advantages to some of the universal packaging is that it is coming all contained very similar to what an app image does where it's trying to it's trying to come all contained so that that application doesn't have to go outside of its little sandbox to give you extra security now i'm not 100 percent sure if that's how snaps work but that would be my inclination would be it was something with a driver mismatch or, or something like that where you're running the exact same version of the software and assuming that the you know the software is compiled correctly the only x factor there would be this one is sandboxed where you know the deb version is not so i've never experienced this particular problem with Caden live but i've also had similar inconsistencies with universal packaging insofar as i've run inkscape and with inkscape the issue that i ran into was well quite frankly it just wouldn't launch and so i had a vector graphic saved it it was fine everything was good and they go to reopen it and i just can't get inkscape to launch 
Finally, I stop clicking on the SVG trying to get it to open with Inkscape, and instead I launch Inkscape separately and try to open the SVG, and I get a file read error. Much like Rick, I blew away the snap package, installed Inkscape from apt, never had a problem, never went back. I will say just in defense of snaps, I've had it the other way around. So two pieces of software come into mind. The first is Weasis. Weasis is a very esoteric piece of software that is that you've likely never heard of unless you work in the medical industry, but it reads and writes DICOM images, which is are essentially an uncompressed image format that appends metadata to the image so that it can be tracked with a patient in the medical industry. And they've standardized around the way that they pull images off of every kind of imaging equipment from CAT scans to PET scans to uh, ultrasounds, echoes, any of it, are all comes in and they're stored either as sign loops or as static images. In any event, Weasis is a, an open source viewer that allows you to view DICOM images. And so when I'm troubleshooting DICOM systems, I'll oftentimes use Weasis. Well, they have a deb and they have an, a, a, you can add an, a, a repo and all the rest of it. But I've had trouble getting it to work properly or getting it to really specifically read DICOM images locally, whereas a snap version works 100% of the time. I can't remember which direction it was, if it was a snap or the app image that works, but I've had the same thing with mind test too. My kids had mind test and one version of mind test has an error in where you can't specify the port or the server port properly. And, and again, I don't recall if it's the app image or, or, or excuse me, the snap package or the, the, the regular deb from, from the app repository, but one of them works and one of them doesn't. And so to a degree, it's kind of been trial and error. This one works here. This one works there. The other thing I would share with you is at UltraSpeed, we have switched largely over to flat packs because of some inconsistencies with snap packages. And there again, I would tell you it kind of depends. Some applications work better with the flat pack. Some of them work better with snap. Some of them work better with apt. I'm kind of an old curmudgeon and I'm still like with Weasis, my, my, my inclination to want to use a snap package in part was the security confinement appeals to me because it's, Weasis specifically is this godforsaken Java thing that you know, I would prefer not have running loose on my system. So I like the idea of having some security sandboxing around it, but largely, Steve, can you think of a reason of why you would want something that's installed as a snap as opposed to just installed from your regular distros repository? I the auto updating, I suppose. Mm. Um, there's also a, like I said, I'm more familiar with flat packs like you are. Uh, assuming that that snaps also ship drivers with them, there is that as well. So like I'll speak specifically with flat packs because that's what I'm more familiar with. As you update a flat pack, it will give you the latest NVIDIA drivers for that flat pack. Um, and they come down kind of all bundled together. And so that's kind of an advantage because maybe you don't want to roll the latest version of the... Um, of the NVIDIA driver for one reason or another. Um, mm -hmm. And so, or whichever driver it is that you're, you know, could be the Mesa stack or whatever. So there are some some advantages. The, the auto update is one. The verification could be another one. So I know that the verification uh, process in terms of like the verified, what do they call it? Not verified owner, but you know, the when somebody publishes it, Canonical launched that program where mm -hmm. Um, there's some sort of verification that could be appealing to people as well. So if you if you're running into that, certainly if you have a problem, uh, check to see where it's installed from. Try a different version, see if that works. I would also just kind of throw out into the ether that this again is where some of those distros that allow you to run software from 
a bunch of different sources and a, based on a bunch of different distros, I think are hugely going to be hugely advantageous because depending on what the software manufacturer, software developer designed you to do, um, you're able to go with whatever they suggest as best practice without having to entirely redo your system. But thank you so much for writing in, Rick. We appreciate that. And if there's anybody else that's having an issue, yeah, check to see where your software is installed from. Try a different option. See if you have different results. And then, and this is the really important part, report that back upstream. Please report that back upstream. Because there is some poor developer sitting there that is spending a lot of time, effort, and money to push to either the app repository or Snap or Flatpak. And whoever that is deserves to know that this either is working or isn't working. So they have the opportunity to fix it. Um, so that's being a good citizen of the open source community and making sure to contribute that information back upstream so that it can be fixed. Our third email comes in from Charlie. Charlie writes in and says, good eye, everyone. I came across this network switch on Amazon in the USA. Has anyone else come across it and thoughts on it? And he links to a Zeisel 12-port switch for 180 bucks, And specifically, it is the Zeisel XGS 1210. So, Steve, I'm going to ask, what were your initial thoughts when you took a look at the switch? Well, the specs were pretty good. I mean, I, I've seen the switch before, and my initial response was, I don't really know the brand. I don't mm. live in this world like, like Noah does, but... I I saw that and was like, hmm. I know no customers have this that I know of, which which tells me first of all that probably means there isn't support contracts or whatever. Yep. Um, and that's that's a it's not a problem for me personally, but that would explain why none of my clients would go for it because the people that are engaging with Red Hat are especially engaging at my level. They're very interested in having somebody to pick up the phone and call <laughs> and some sort of support, support contract. So. Um, Aside from that, without getting my hands on it, it looks like a switch. Uh, it's got the, the 10 gigabit ports, uh, two 10 gigabit and two 2.5 gigabit ports. That's kind of appealing. I, I got to be honest. It basically gives you 10 gig uh, backbone. So uh, Zysol has been around since like the late 80s. I would put them on par with the unifies of the world. So it's not going to be your Cisco, it's not going to be your 3Com, it's not going to be top top tier. But it's a good budget brand for a lot of things. Where Zysel fell off the charts for me entirely is in 2019, they went to what they spun off into from Zysel Communications and went to Zysel Networks. And as part of that, they went down this cloud rabbit hole of sorts to where all of their switches now are configured via their cloud app. And so you adopt the switch in the cloud, and then the cloud app does all the configuration, all the rest of it. And if you want to get updates for your router, again, you have to enroll it in their stupid portal. The thing that was really bothersome to me about that is we've gone in after competitors, and we'll go to pull some of their equipment out, and they'll have spent you know, a thousand, two thousand, three thousand dollars on this equipment, and you go to try to reconfigure it for them, and, and it says no, it's it's locked to this particular account, and so you say, well, okay, let's reset it, and as soon as you reset it, and it gets back on the internet, it reprovisions itself back from from that account, and so uh, we've I have enough of them sitting on shelves now to where that have just become glorified paperweights, and we had to replace them with something else. That I would say, if you're in this market and you're in this price range, I would say. 
skip the Taiwanese company and and the and the lower end stuff, and I would just go straight to Unify. The other choice that's a good brand in this price point in this uh, category, TP Link. TP Links makes surprisingly good stuff for their price point, and so they're again a little bit lower end, not exactly top tier, but at the same time, if you're looking for some of those advanced features to where you want to get into managing VLANs and learning about how switches work, and you want the ability to have an intuitive web UI and all the rest of it, I think TP-Link absolutely delivers on those things. Again, if you're worried about security to the max, you're probably going with something like a Cisco or an HP or a Juniper or something like that. But I think this is, I think they're an okay brand. So if you, if you came across a deal on one and it looks like, you know, you can find these for 180 bucks and you're interested in a 12 port switch, the best I could tell, the XG1210 specifically looks like it has a local web UI, doesn't mention cloud, doesn't reference cloud. So I think you can configure it locally, but I have not had hands on uh, with it. And so you should just, I guess, be aware of that going into it. From the Linux Newswire newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. For the week of May 28th, 2023, here's the Linux and open source news. Wine 8.9 has been released with Mono 8.0, Doppler shift support in direct sound, the completion of PE conversion in the PostScript driver, and more Wayland updates. GCC 11.4 has been released, and Linux 6.3.5 has been released that fixes an XFS metadata corruption bug. The microOS desktop by Richard Brown of SUSE has a new name, OpenSUSE Aeon for the GNOME version, and OpenSUSE Culpa for the Plasma version. The Kali Linux team has released version 2023.2. And much like Fedora Silverblue, Fedora Kina White, and Fedora Saracia, there's going to be a new immutable version of Fedora coming called Fedora Onyx, which uses the budgie desktop. And in other Fedora news, the Cubes team has released their Fedora 38 template. CIQ has extended enterprise-grade support for Rocky Linux 9.2 as well as Rocky Linux 8.8. In security news, Linux routers in Japan are now the target of a new Golang remote access Trojan called Gobrat. And in AI news, two new LLMs have been open-sourced. Abu Dhabi makes its Falcon LLM trained with 40 billion parameters open-source, and then there's Samba Nova, a 176 billion parameter LLM available under a modified Apache license. Also auf dem Handy einfach mal so, TikTok's installed. You'll have to excuse the uh, you'll have to excuse the uh, a little bit of roughness around the edges as I'm in a different studio and the buttons are in a different place and don't work quite the same way. Uh, coming up next, we're going to take a look at an interview that we recorded while we were at Red Hat Summit. Take a listen. <laughs> We're here with Lamine Blachat. He is the CTO of the Scottish Government Agriculture and Rural Economy Directorate. So I'm going to start with this. Can you help me understand your title a little bit? So you work with the Scottish Government. Sure. What is it you actually do? Sure. So I work in the Agricultural Rural Economy Directorate, as you said. We look after um, the, the wider agricultural industry in, Scot in Scotland. We do a number of things, um, including funding the rural economy. So we fund uh, farmers. There's about 20,000 farmers in Scotland at the moment. We fund them to the tune about £650 million a year. Um, what was described by a colleague of mine, a billion dollars or so. That's now about $650 million, but that's, that's exchange rates for you. Um, so we, we do that through a series of interventions um, across the farmers to ensure that 
Uh, we, we fund farming based on a number of criteria, that, you know, so um, sustainable food production, um, redu reducing greenhouse gases and carbon emissions, and increasing biodiversity. So we're going through a bit of a transformation at the moment through that. Um, agriculture in Scotland, so 80% of Scotland's land is taken up by agriculture and farming at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, so massive, massive population, massive part of, of Scotland, and certainly uh, geospatial based organisation looking at a number of criteria, a number of technologies, and a lot of data to be able to make payments to, to farmers through lots of criteria, which is evolving and changing to support Scottish government policies as they evolve, especially now that we've left the European Union. Help me understand how data and technology play a role in farming. Ma massively. So tr traditionally what we've done is we, we maintain the land. So we maintain that 80% of land through a number of technologies. So uh, satellite uh, technology, aerial photography, um, using we're starting to look at drone footage as well now. And that's also done by site inspectors. So we, we look at, the, we maintain the land um, in terms of what's on that land, what's happening to that land, uh, how well it's meeting a set of criteria across you know, good, good quality land management, mm -hmm. sustainable food production, as I said. And then data, we're using a wide variety of sources of data that we take in, generally through an annual application process around what's been done in that land, against what criteria, um, and we're using that. Now, where we are at the moment is we've got a big opportunity going forward, particularly with the agenda that we're talking about, about reducing our carbon emissions. So agriculture in Scotland is the third biggest carbon producer. We've not reduced those emissions over the last 20 years, unlike uh, transport and energy, which are the, the other two big big ones. So there's a massive um, government commitment in Scotland to reduce them massively. But at the same time, we need to have sustainable food production. So we want to produce more of our own food and rely less on imports. So that brings into you know global issues that have gone on recently and war in Ukraine. And that's had an impact on, on all of us, but certainly Scotland in terms of um, food imports. Um, so it's that wider agenda there about how do we maintain that. But actually, at the heart of that, going forward, there's a real opportunity to, to use much more data than we ever have done before, particularly with sensor-based technology, IoT, uh, remote sensing, all sorts of things in there. Um, particularly when we look at um, soil quality and atmospheric conditions that are going on, there's a huge plethora of data, that there are potentially a lot of open data that we can actually tap into much more. Traditionally, until now, we've, we're, we've been paying these, these subsidies for about 40 years under previous EU common agricultural policy, which we've obviously left now as a, as a nation. Um, and that has been a very kind of cyclical, we would take inf information on an annual basis, we go out and verify and check that. Now we're saying, well, with all the data sources available to us, including satellite data, which is getting better all the time, LiDAR data, how can we make use of that? And how can we actually help farmers on their journey, which citizens ultimately of Scotland, how can we help them make good decisions that are good for their, their business, but ultimately good for the environment, good for the land, and good for um, food production? So massive opportunity, and we're really at the cusp of looking at that at the moment. So, you know, you speak about serving your farmers and serving your country and serving the people that work in your country. And that, you know, is, you know, it's interesting because a lot of the people that I talk to work in private industry. You're sure. working for the government. You're working towards the same sort of goals. You're, you have a client base of sort and you're trying to serve them. How does open source play into that? Yeah. So at, at the moment, open source and and. In Scotland, we align to um, wider government digital standards, or um, mm -hmm. standard, and, and, which is UK-based. We have a kind of Scotland flavour of that, so we've got digital Scotland service standard and Scottish approach to service design. So I'm coming to your question in a moment, but those are all about actually designing services for users um, and ultimately citizens, which is what we're there to do. That's where our value comes, giving good quality public services for them, enables a wider growth in food production, the wider economic growth, etc. Open source, we, we have a technology code of practice where we should always consider open source and favor open source um, wherever possible. And actually, put, put that, um, being publishing, publishing source code as well should be the default. 
Now, how, how well that's actually being achieved, this is another conversation, I guess, another question. But certainly that's open source should, should be at the heart of it. And there's obvious benefits as to why that should be the case in terms of opening up that agenda for, for more citizen participation in open source, open up the agenda for the, the open data, which may follow as a result, and that, that agenda for actually educating and empowering citizens for, for, for looking into the actual data themselves. And ultimately, what we're, the reason we're doing that in Scotland, like many, many um, nations, is, is it's all about um, using data to make the right decisions, so evidence-based decisions. So actually the politicians and the policy makers who I ultimately am there to serve, mm -hmm. it's to make sure that they've got the right information so they can make the best decisions they can and do that in a transparent way for citizens in terms of that's the kind of open, open government agenda we, we're very much got in Scotland. So you're helping people learn and you're helping people understand the world around them and the businesses that they're engaged in and the things that support Scotland. Absolutely, absolutely. So it's very circular. Yeah challenges that you're talking about and you said you know it'd be great and that's we want to start with the premise that things are always open but it doesn't always work out that way given those challenges do you see open source in government as an advantage or a disadvantage on the whole both i mean if to every advantage is a converse to that so there there is an advantage obviously about um, engaged citizens so there's you know that that data scientists that, that different those so engaging more citizens in Scotland, engaging um, greater public debate. So those, those are massive advantages through, through open source. But obviously, we're trying to develop a skills as a, a nation as well. So wherever, wherever tools can be made available are freely available, genuinely freely available, where, there, where people can, can be looking at things themselves, um, right through to academia, businesses, it's, it's obviously a good thing to do to break down any barriers there's access to technology and data, so absolutely the right, right thing to do. How, how we enable that, how we, how we make that happen is another issue. Again, a lot of organisations, including mine, you know, we've been around for four decades. I've not been quite, long, quite as long as that um, in my organisation, but we've got decades worth of ways of working, legacy ways of working, and of course within that you become certain lock into certain vendors over time as well. It's, it's a reality that can happen as well. So we're trying to look at them all together in the rounds to how we go forward. How does the average citizen or does the average citizen have access to the open source software or as I understand it, I think you called it open standards or open data. Yeah. How accessible is that to the average citizen? Yeah, so we, that's, that's been very much pushed in Scotland. So we should be publishing data wherever we can. There are, there are many good uh, websites that are in Scotland, you know, open data, you can Google it and you can find open data sources now. There's environmental open data. So there's more and more being, being coming out there. Mm -hmm. um, different organizations are in different levels of their own maturity and how frequently they're publishing. Um, so when you look at, there's a, there's a great uh, website that, that you can look at for open data in Scotland. There's lots of published data there. Um, the councils, the local authorities in Scotland, we, uh, we've got 32 of them in Scotland, they're, they're very good at publishing a lot of that data, so enabling citizens to make decisions in their own local communities. Um, different parts of, of Scotland, like our, our population, so National Records of Scotland, they're very good at publishing population stats, births, marriages and deaths, so you're getting that real flavour of where people are, what they're doing in, in the country, and, and how, how we can actually serve people locally in the best way possible. So there's, there's real great stuff going on in pockets. You know, that's not consistent across different areas, I'd say. So it's really trying to move that agenda forward encourage and poke mandate at times as well yeah so as you as you watch that unfold that's got to be exciting for you inside of your country and, and watching yeah. all this data become available as that happens have you come across some unique examples of like wow that's amazing that the public was able to figure that out or able mm -hmm. to leverage data in that way isn't it cool that we make that available so unsurprisingly i have but the, the, the area i think i think well, it may not surprise you or the viewers where I've seen that happen most recently was COVID-19. So in response to the pandemic and we, you know, we, we actually did a, a system in Scotland of, of different levels for each area where we're doing that. So uh -huh. 
I can't remember it's level zero to, to four in terms of, of, of COVID in that local authority. And that was where people could move um, in and out of boundaries. And what was really cool about that was what actually what we started doing was we're publishing weekly um, death stats. Not, not particularly nice, but you could see what was happening at a local area. You get very granular. So National Record Scotland was doing that. There was all the kind of health board data. Um, the, the health board in Scotland were publishing areas where COVID was being reported as positive tests through all the self testing and uh, local th- local authority testing. And there's there's a number of other publications that were going on. And what was happening was actually citizens were using tools from those we taking those data sets and using open source tools and all sorts of things, publishing it quicker than government could, and actually publishing, you know, sharing it, whether it's on Twitter or different places, um, academia was on that, but it was actually it was citizens that were coming up with cool things, and I was going to different places and getting data quicker than we could publish in, in government, uh-huh. which actually, traditionally, we'd be feel very uncomfortable with that, because we like to publish everything, we like to check it, we like to make sure it's all right. <laughs> actually, what enabling people to do it themselves and having the raw data and actually showing where the evidence has come from was actually really, really good. And you can see people are starting to use these and share these. And it was kind of, it was an organic thing where it was coming quicker than we could ever produce ourselves. But ultimately, that was because the data was there for people and the incentive was there. People wanted to know where they could travel, where they could travel, or actually was there a higher exposure in this particular really quite small granular level, you know, of, of an ultimately a few, few streets they could look at and say, oh, be careful there, don't come out of your house people, or, or actually we're much safer to move around these these other communities. So there was really cool stuff there, and it's actually, that was that citizen enabled through the data. Was there anything that you saw that you were like, man, we just couldn't have done that in, like, it, I mean, I shouldn't say we couldn't do it, because I mean, anything mm-hmm. can be done with enough time and enough money, but was there anything that you saw that was like, that wouldn't have gotten done if it wasn't for private citizens working with, having access to, and then working with open data? Yeah, I think, I think in that example, it'd be the kind of infographics. So it was, it was kind of the, I can't, can't remember from my head what tooling there was, but it was all the kind of infographics that were easily digestible on social media. So that could be thrown in a tweet, could be put in an Instagram post, could be put in Facebook. Um, and some of that was really cool just to see how people engage, how people like to, to produce um, visualizations and data and stats. Because we, we're quite a rigid way of doing that, I guess you could say. We're, you know, we're moving forward, but we, we certainly traditionally publish very tabular data that's been set in publications that come mm-hmm. out and they've come out. Now that, that's good and we're, we're, we've got processes to, to do that and reasons to make sure the data is accurate. But actually, we could, we were learning about actually people, you know, putting a, a, a few diagrams in a PDF and putting it as a public, official publication. People could just pull, pull some together in a tweet and actually get the message across. And it's all about that storytelling and, and how effective that's. So there's been a lot of learning since that's gone on. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's the word accessible. Yeah. Was, did you have any concerns or were there any problems with data being falsified or data being misrepresented? So I don't know personally, because I guess that, to be perfectly honest, that, that wasn't my, my area of expertise. Um, sure. But, but I think that would always be the concern. That's always a concern as to why I think government, as, as well as, as being open and transparent, which is what we stand for and which what we're there to do, government is also risk averse. Generally, mm-hmm. so there's there's always that consideration about who's who's put out a publication, how they're being signed off, who's and that's that's good and proper to keep people um, make sure they're doing the right thing. But sometimes that inhibits innovation and that inhibits things. So I think we we all learned a lot from that. To see actually what was happening on the ground, particularly in a time of crisis, and, and how people were using that in a different way. And at the end of the day, if they're citing the data, anybody could go look at the raw data. Exactly. And go find out. Exactly. How do you think open source should play into education? So we can take government, and that starts to make some sense, and we say, okay, well, if public dollars are paying for this thing, then the public should on the door have access to it. Do you think that extends into education? And if so, how can we leverage open source to better education? Yeah, a great question. And again, not, not an area of my expertise, but education has traditionally been reliant on big uh, proprietary providers, as I'm sure, um, and it's, it's no different in Scotland. Um, 
I think I think the opportunities are m- massively there because actually it's an education. It's, it's the youngsters, the, the clever ones of this country, they're going to drive forward the economy yeah. in the future. Not people like me at the stage now in my career. So it's actually about there is that opportunity to get more and more open source into schools at an early age, mm-hmm. um, and to get more and more to, to academia as well. And I think there is a movement going on, but actually, it's all comes down to skills. So who are the people? Without you no know, disrespect in any sense, but you know that the academics are actually teaching our children. You know what? What it's trying to understand throughout the whole journey as to how we make that happen. Um, obviously, they, we tend to go to some of those big providers because they are proven and they are trusted, and they've done things for a number of years and they do things in a certain way, and many of it they do very well. But how how do we break that model and actually say, well, how do how do we enable more? And I think I, I think education is a great example, um, but I think at the same time. It's a difficult one because those those big um, companies of the world they they've kind of mastered that and they've got the pricing right mm-hmm. that people are re- prepared to do and they got the support. So how does open source come into that? And I don't know the answer to that myself. Okay, I think it's got an, a fantastic opportunity to do a lot more, certainly in the skills front as well, because that's where we need to. I don't I haven't met anybody today in the the, the conference who's not talked about skill shortage. Okay, or doing less with more that comes up all the time. So how do we how do we enable that growth at the the youngest possible time in people's um, academic journey, life, to, to, to do it. That's, that's where there's massive opportunities. You know, it occurs to me, if you give students access to open source software and you give students access to real, actual open data, now you have the government and you have citizens funding the government, the government collecting information, turning that information back over to the citizens to improve right. people that are coming up in education, and then allowing students to get hands-on experience with real software, with real data, as they learn how to fill the next generation or grow that next role. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I've been you know, working with sort of young graduates coming out of university myself. And, you know, you kind of, you get used to your way of working, but some of the ways of thinking from the younger generation who are genuinely born, born, you know, digital natives and 100%, they've, they've never known a world without a smartphone, a lot of them now coming through, mm-hmm. um, without an iPad, without whatever else type of, the way they're thinking and the way they want to present data and the way they think about information it's actually an, an education to us all. So they, I think they're forming different ways of thinking, different ways of presenting data, mm-hmm. different ways of interpreting that as well. And that's, that's another key point, it's actually, how do you then interpret that data and how do you use it? That's, that's statistics as well behind all of that. But that's, that's a really interesting one for me. Talk a little bit about the transition from oil to wind. How is that going in Scotland and what role, if any, does open, is open source playing in that? Yeah, so, so a massive one. So Scotland's got a big commitment to renewables. Scotland um, traditionally has been the, the sort of, certainly Aberdeen and the northeast coast of Scotland, been the, the oil capital of the UK, which had driven a lot of the, the oil previously. Now Scottish government, again, this word just transition, mm-hmm. is talking about Scottish government. So Scottish government has devolved from the UK government, just to be clear in case anybody's unaware of that. So so devolved administration in Scotland. And there's the big priority is, is really about a just transition away from the reliance on oil and, and gas. Mm-hmm towards renewables. Now, Scotland, we're in a, got a fantastic opportunity because we, we've got huge amount of nat- uh, wave um, energy. Mm-hmm. So we've got huge to, make, to, to generate energy um, and huge amount of wind energy off, off on, onshore and offshore wind um, is massive now in Scotland. So mm-hmm. you know, I heard a stat the other day that Scotland already produces 120% of its own electricity. So it's got a surplus now. Now, that's, that's, that is now shared within the wider UK um, sure. uh, grid. 
again, without, without putting any political spin on that, that's, that's just a, a fact. Um, but there's a massive opportunity now about, about open, open data to actually drive forward where the new investments are, where we put wind farms. There's a, there's a, there's a thing in, like many other parts, there's, there's also, I don't know if you know the term nimbyism. And, so NIMBYism, it's not in my backyard, is okay. what it actually stands for. Yep. So everybody wants to have renewables, but nobody wants a big pile on outside their house. Yeah. Um, nobody, you know, so it comes to farmers as well. We're encouraging um, farmers to transition some land away from farming, potentially, into um, to renewables and, and to, um, to, you know, changing some of that landscape to, to actually put mm -hmm. more renewables in there. And then that becomes a kind of a debate. Again, again I'm, I'm not showing any political views, but, but a debate about whether that's the right place to do it, about the landscape. But actually, taking that away, where, where is the most opportune places through open data to actually put these places? Where is the best investment in terms of the, the most available wind, for example? Mm -hmm. Where can that be consumed? Where is that closest to the grid that it can reuse? So the other point, we can't just put things that, there needs to be a national grid there as well. Mm -hmm. We can't just generate energy and not have anywhere to put it. So how do you bring all that information together to allow people, communities, maybe even, even reward in the future to say, There's, we're going to do this for this reason. We're going to take some land away from farming, for example, mm -hmm. but, but we're going to use it for, for energy. So actually, having the right data there to help make those decisions and for people to participate in that is absolutely a real opportunity, I think. Because to be informed. Exactly. Talk to me about the spaceport. To what <laughs> is, I, I guess you have to excuse my ignorance, what is the Scottish spaceport? And again, what role, if any, does open source and open data play? So, so yeah, the Scottish spaceport has been talk, talked about a lot. Um, it's part of a wider UK initiative about... Um, and, and European Space Agency as well about, about um, having I think about um, the capability to launch satellites into space. Scotland, particularly the north, and I believe up to Shetland, so that's our, our islands in the very northeast, have some great um, uh, opportunities for that. They're mm -hmm. geographically very good in terms of. Uh, again, I am no uh, NASA expert, but, but mm -hmm. able to launch satellites effectively from their latitude. Um, so there, there's a big economic opportunity there for Scotland. Desktop offers a user-friendly interface for handling containers and integrating with Kubernetes from a local workstation. So to put it another way, it gives developers a simplified path to bring their development and production environments closer together. So to help break this down with me, obviously we have to get Steve's opinion because Steve, you work with containers day in and day out. It is literally your job to work with containers and, and specifically OpenShift. Can you talk about your initial reaction when you saw this news from Red Hat that they are streamlining container management um, for developers by offering Podman Desktop? I think in general, there's a, a big benefit to this, depending on who you're actually targeting and for what purpose, right? Okay. So if you're thinking about, well, I want to pick up a skill that I can use in the workplace and so i'm gonna i'm gonna go learn podman desktop and then i'm gonna go get a job as a sysadmin or devops or sre or whatever what have you i think that 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 path is misguided there might be some level of of learning that will help you with that especially if you do things like go and be curious and figure out well what is this thing doing under the hood when i do it um and keeping your own notes and, and being able to figure out how to do this because ultimately at the end of the day, uh, the Podman desktop in and of itself, so specifically the tools, and it's the same thing with Docker desktop or any of those sorts of things, those are not really employable skills. They might be used to help you build an employable skill such as 
I'm a developer and I'm working on a Java app and all I need to do is continuously rev my environment and I don't want to keep uh, spinning up new VMs or, or revving my VMs because the container is faster. In this way, the Podman desktop will help you get to an employable skill, but it is not the skill yourself, right? So mm. you have to think about what is what is the audience for this and what are you what are you trying to achieve? And I don't think, now I don't work with this, okay? Mm-hmm. And Dan, if you're ever listening to this, I'm sorry if I butcher this terribly, <laughs> but um, I think that the, the Podman desktop is not really aimed at building container skills. What it's aimed at is allowing somebody to use a, use a container as an endpoint, as a, as a way to develop your application or whatever to, to unstick you, as opposed to the idea that this is some, a tool that we're going to give to help people learn and understand containers. So it could be used for that, right? But whenever you slap a GUI over things, what's more likely to happen is the underlying, um, the underlying complexity or nuances are ignored and people will live within whatever's exposed via the UI 99% of the time. And so you're not going to get any deeper. So there's a tremendous amount of power that's underneath the graphical interface. That is the command line. And in fact, it's interesting because we tell system administrators, Sure, you can get your start with a graphical user interface, get kind of the lay of the land. But if you really want to separate, you know, the true samurais from the amateurs, that's where you start leveraging the power of the command line, because it's just faster and more efficient to be able to type something out than to navigate through nine menus to get to where you want to be. I think the positive side here, though, is and it sounds like you agree with this. The discoverability factor is greater with a graphical interface, because at the end of the day, if I know nothing about the technology, I can click around, click on buttons to see what does what. It's very difficult. Not that it's impossible, because if you, I had a, I had a, my first Red Hat instructor. He was this old crotchety guy that stood out the front, and his answer to every question I ever asked was, "Grep a man page." And at the time, I didn't even know what grepping a man page meant. But that was his answer to everything: is you don't understand something, you don't understand what I'm telling you to do. Go grep the man page and learn. And by the end of that class, I was very proficient with cat grep and. And, and looking at man pages. And the, the skill that I walked out of that class, as frustrating as it was for me at the time, was I learned how to solve my own problem. And to the, to, to a larger extent, man pages and, and then to a lesser extent, bro pages allow you to really learn the way that the person who, or the group of people who developed a piece of software intends you to use it. And you can learn all of the uh, available variables and or operators uh, that are available you know, in that system, it sounds like to me, this it really finds its place in as an introduction to container technologies or to administrating containers for newer people. If you have no experience or maybe you come from the Windows world or maybe you come from the Mac world and you're used to using, um, you know, Docker on the desktop, maybe this is a a, a, a cleaner way to slide into managing Podman. Is that possible? It is. I don't. I don't really foresee that. I think it's more knowing what what Red Hat's target audience generally is. What I think this is is if if we backtrack a little bit and think through the history of OpenShift, which is kind of the plat the the flagship platform for Red Hat in terms of containers. Um, we initially had this thing called um, uh, what was it called? It's 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 basically like a a, a mini shift. It was called mini shift. So it was okay. a, a little contained 
version of OpenShift that you could run on your lap laptop. And I'll put that in air quotes because it was fairly chonky. Like you, you couldn't pick up like a, a $300 laptop at Walmart and, you know, install mini shift and, and be mm -hmm. on your route. Um, and what we found was that that was, it was not enough for sysadmins to actually learn on. And it was too much for the developer in terms of like being demanding on the hardware and what they actually wanted to get to. So then we have this thing called code ready workspaces. And this is another way for you to try and, um, develop with containers without having to worry about the complexity of the backend infrastructure. You're still, you want to be close to the tooling that you're going to deploy to eventually, which in our case, you know, we want you to deploy to OpenShift. So you want to, you want to kind of follow that chain. So if I follow that thought back process, we, we started with something that was kind of chunky and it worked. Then we, we scaled back to uh, code ready workspaces. And this is something that you run inside of OpenShift and it does all kinds of magic for you. So instead of running it on your laptop, they install it in a cluster somewhere for you. And if we scale that back even further and say, okay, we want to try and bring this back to the laptop. It makes sense to me that that Podman desktop is again, one of those things where a developer knows that they need to rapidly iterate on their code locally before they do a bunch of pushes or else you have a bunch of garbage commits. Like, I don't know how many times my commit message is like testing this thing. <laughs> oh, I made a typo, you know, like all of those sorts of things. And so it's to help you, I would imagine again, not involved in this product mm -hmm. at all. But if I, if I take the longer view of, of where we have come from, I imagine what this is meant for is to allow the developers to iterate faster locally before having to tap into the more enterprisey thing. And so the goal here is to make it as easy as possible. Ultimately, honestly, most developers don't care. They need to run their code and that's what they care about and how that happens. They're largely the architects, right? The software architects, mm -hmm. they care and they help people break things up into microservices and stuff like that. But the vast majority of the rank and file, they have a task that they need to do. They need to be able to like, I need to be able to spin this up, whether it's I'm doing the full application or just like a tiny, uh, tiny section in a microservice. They need to spin it up and test the function that they're running. And I can see this as a step, like the first step of like, okay, I need to have three or four containers running because I am running a, um, like a microservice, mm -hmm. but I don't need, like, I don't need to run it on a cluster somewhere. And I def definitely don't need to run a cluster on my laptop. So this is kind of like a, okay, click play on all of these containers that I need to be running and they'll all spin up and talk to themselves and then I can dev on my code. And that's what I think this is more aimed at. A, uh, a, a, in the chat room, somebody submits a question to Marlin, the question bot, and says, where is there overlap between containerized applications and universal packaging? Could Steve talk about how this might play into that? So I think what they're getting at here is Podman is, or, or in this case, Podman desktop is a graphical way to administrate containers on the desktop do you see any overlap between being able to run containerized applications on the desktop and universal packaging or are those two entirely separate things designed with two entirely separate purposes in mind at some point i think that they were starting to converge a little bit but ultimately uh from the wider audience so we as the the nerd niche sure we'll run uh, an application in a container and we'll run a snap and a flat pack and all the rest of that. The average person, they don't care. And, uh, running a container for an application 
for the end user is probably overkill because the end users is someone like my son or my wife or or my dad, you know, where spinning up a container for Firefox is definitely overkill, mm -hmm. right? And that adds some complexity. So sure, the the niche of the niche of the niche of us that are A, running Linux, B, know what containers are, C, are actually going to put up with all of the jankiness that, that setting up containers will do. That portion of society is so, so small. I'm pretty sure nobody's thinking about them. <laughs> it's kind of like, hey, we did this thing with containers and oh, it could be beneficial for me to do this and you know for myself, and I'll just release it to the world. I I view that as more the path of like where there might be overlap there, because ultimately, containers are, uh, as an industry, are focused more on providing uh, and solving solutions for people that have complex problems and not deploying applications to your desktop. Well said, sir. So coming up June 9th, 10th, and 11th, it is Southeast Linux Fest. You can join the Matrix space. They're looking for volunteers still. You can learn more and register ahead of time at southeastlinuxfest.org. But you can also register at the door. And, of course, there are a number of ways to get free registration. So if you can't afford it, we've had people come to the conference and say, listen, I wanted to get my child involved or whatever it was. And if it hadn't have been for Southeast Linux Fest's free registration, I wouldn't have been able to do that. So we definitely want you to take advantage of that. Steve, you're going to be there. Are you looking forward to it? I am. I'm giving uh, two talks, one on kind of container internals from a Linux sysadmin perspective. And I'm giving one SRE like related talk about doing postmortem so i'll be there with ask with noah and the ask noah booth and and jt and all the crew and we'll hope to have some food with people out there i appreciate your time steve all right we will uh the music in our ears means we're out of time thanks for joining us we record this show every tuesday at 6 p.m central you can learn more at asknoahshow.com we need you to make the show happen if it's not for your participation there wouldn't be a show so if you've encountered a challenge with linux or open source we invite you to write in live at asknoahshow.com and share that experience if your journey is ongoing we'll try to help you and we'll try to overcome your challenges and if your journey is complete and you've solved your problem well, hey, share your experience, share the love, and use your voice to empower the next generation or the next open source enthusiast to leverage technology to its fullest potential. You can get the latest on Twitter. I'm at Colonel Linux. He's at Linux 7s. The show at Ask Noah Show. We'll see you next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central, asknoahshow.com.